As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Blue Apron, The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Mac Weldon, and our contributors at Patreon. On February 4th, 1977, 14 schoolchildren were playing outside at the Broadhaven Primary School in Pembrokeshire, Wales, when they saw an unidentified flying object in a neighboring field. At one point, some sort of silver-looking creature was apparently seen near the craft. According to the BBC, Multiple students reported seeing it all day, and word was traveling fast through the small school. It wasn't long before 10-year-old David Davis got wind of it, and even at that young age, he was extremely skeptical of the stories he was hearing that day. He decided that the only logical course of action was to go out as soon as the bell rang and take a look for himself. That was 41 years ago, and the majority of those kids aren't talking too much about what happened anymore. But Dave Davis has been, ever since, sometimes at great personal cost. Thanks to listener and friend of the show, producer Reese Waters, Astonishing Legends was able to get in touch with Mr. Davis. And tonight, you will hear from him in great detail about what he experienced at Broadhaven Primary School back in 1977. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Forrest Burgess, and this is Scott Philbrook. With all those decades of research, is there anything that you felt like aligned with what you saw more than any other particular hypothesis? No, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Join us tonight for the last part of our story arc on the Welsh Triangle. And we're back. Yes, we are. And you know what else is about to be back? I I don't know. Our mugs. (laughs) Oh, okay. Now that's cool. That's great. Yes, our manufacturing problems have been sorted out, and the home office in Ohio tells me that I should tell everyone to keep an eye on the store, because the mugs should be back in stock in the next few weeks, and this time, Astonishing Al's face will not fall off of them. Oh, dear. Poor Al. Just like an aging Hollywood celebrity. Uh, Some of my favorite pictures we've ever gotten are mugs where his face had disappeared, (laughs) or was partially disappeared. Yeah. Anyway, we should make a gallery out of that. 
Also, by the way, we're going to roll out some fun new stuff for the fall and winter, so be ready for that, including some kick-butt hoodies and cold-weather stuff with David Spencer's artwork on it, and some limited edition stuff from our listener, Francesca, who made one of my favorite Skinwalker Ranch images ever. Yes, and the last thing before we get into the show tonight, our good friend Colin Schneider, internationally known as the Crypto Kid, has his first book out, Ramblings of Teenage Cryptozoologists, which he co-wrote with another young expert in cryptozoology, Tyler Hoke. It's available now on lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, and in a few weeks, it will be on Amazon and other places for sale as well. Yeah, we met Colin at the Kent Paranormal Weekend in Ohio earlier this year after he made a fascinating presentation. He's just an amazing and knowledgeable young man with an intense passion for cryptids, and boy does he know his stuff, so check that book out. Oh, and one last thing. When we did this interview tonight with Dave, we conducted it via Skype to his landline in the UK, and there is some distortion in his voice. We ran some cleanup filters on it, but overall, it's one of those things we just couldn't do too much about. However, he's very easy to follow and understand, and we think you'll find once he starts talking, you'll have no trouble at all keeping up with him. When we double our audience, we'll consider traveling to get interviews like these in person, <laughs> but at the moment, we're stuck stateside. Well, I would love to visit Wales, and, yes. and really all of the UK. I'm uh, planning to yeah. now, for sure. Oh, yeah, just to You're going to see some uh, beautiful and strange sights, I guarantee. All right, well, let's roll the interview with Dave, and we'll be back on after to talk a little bit about his observations and, you know, the bigger picture. I was actually on this call, but the machine I was using to record my own voice crashed somehow mysteriously. I'm sure Scott had nothing to do with that. Uh, So I wound up having to stay quiet. which is just very hard for me to do, as you can tell. So see if you can tell which questions came from me via text to Scott during the interview. All right, here we go. So we're on with Dave Davis, who is one of the eyewitnesses to the Broadhaven incident that we're talking about on tonight's show. And uh, I guess before we start, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background and um, what you do and, and where you're from and everything? Well, I'm pretty much retired due to ill health at the moment, but I grew up on a farm not far from Broadhaven where the incident happened. Variety of jobs throughout my life finally culminating in hairdressing before I had to give it up not so long ago. I'm sorry to hear about your health. I was fine. I think we're uh, not too far apart in age. If you were 10 years old when the event happened in 77, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was born in 69, so... <laughs> I was 66. Okay, there we go. Let's talk about the event itself. You know, if you're willing to recount it to us, I know you've probably done it a, a many, many times, but I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about the location and the school and uh, and that day in uh, February of 1977. Well, the school is in Broadhaven, which is right on the west coast of Wales, southwest coast of Wales. Fairly rural school. We had about 125 pupils at the time. Um, everybody knew each other. Very close family atmosphere at the school. This was something that was definitely out of the ordinary happening. It was just a normal day, but throughout the day, children coming in from break times and saying that they'd seen a, a flying saucer or, or something strange flying around the school perimeter. Now, I'm a natural-born skeptic. I didn't believe a single word that anyone was saying. To me, flying saucers were purely in the realm of old 50s sci-fi movies. So at the end of the day, I I decided to have a look in the vicinity of the area they were were talking about and went to the perimeter of the school and couldn't actually see anything. So I thought I'd I'd step over the fence and actually make my way into the sort of field where they'd seen the object. As I was crossing the fence, it popped up from behind some trees, a silver 
cigar-shaped object, probably about 45 feet long, seemed to have a, a pearlescent finish to it. I mean, the sighting only lasted for a matter of maybe five or six seconds, maximum of 10, before it disappeared down behind some trees again. Now, the one thing I've always found strange about the sighting was at no time was I frightened at all. There was no fear in me whatsoever. However, I did get the sudden urge to run away as if there was some sort of suggestion going on that I, I still can't explain to this day. Would you call that like a fight-or-flight reaction that you think was related to the incident itself or maybe just instinct? I don't think it was instinct. It didn't seem like my reaction to run away. There was no fear. My only emotion really was inquisitiveness. But despite this, I still had this strange compulsion to run away from where I was at the time. Can we get some more specific details about what it looked like to you? It was about 45 feet long. I, I equated it to about the size of a, an average bus or coach. Possibly from the side, silver cigar shaped with a central dome that covered the middle third of the body of the vehicle. And on top of that, a red pulsating light, which didn't stand out like a light on top of a police car or an ambulance. The glow seemed to come from the top of the dome itself rather than a light outstanding. Can you tell me again what the craft was doing when you first saw it? It was already landed or you saw it in motion? It was obviously obstructed by some trees that were about, maybe about 200, 300 yards away from the school itself. Okay. As I was trying to climb over the fence, it actually appeared from behind the trees, rose up just above the tree canopy, and there was a slight movement, no sound, but there was a movement to the graph, and then it simply disappeared back down behind the trees again. Interesting. So yeah, you saw it go up and go back down, though. Oh yes, absolutely. Right. This gets a little out there, but I'm sure you've been asked some out there questions <laughs> in, your, in the course of your life, but I mean, do you feel like that desire to run away may have been some kind of warning or telepathic message in your mind that came from the craft? It's something that I'm willing to entertain. Like I said, I can't actually explain what happened. It was just an urge that really wasn't mine. Interesting. What about noise? Did it make any noise? No, there was no noise at all. However, there was a little bit of wind at the time. The weather conditions weren't brilliant, but certainly no noticeable noise. And again, how far away is this? How distant from you? This would possibly be about two, three hundred feet. Okay, not so not really that far. No. Okay, okay. It was about the length of a field that was adjacent to the school itself. And you did not see any kind of occupant of the craft? No, none at all. How many people were with you at this time? I was actually on my own. Uh, it was purely uh, gone to the area to basically disprove what the other kids were saying at the time. I had no, uh, I had no idea that I would even be seeing an object like that. Your thing was they had all come back. They said, this is what we saw. And yeah. you're like, yeah, right. And so you go out exactly. there. Right. And you were skeptical, even at that age. Absolutely. Like I said, flying saucers were the subject of science fiction to me. They didn't feature in my reality at all until that day. Wow. Okay. So you would say when you were younger, you weren't obsessed with science fiction or anything like that? Oh, absolutely not. 
to be quite truthful, I mean, I do love sci-fi, but my main love of sci-fi tends to be with dystopian scenarios, etc., like that. Flying sources were never a big thing with me, or alien invasions, or anything like that. Right, right. So that was maybe too far out for you. So how long were you out there? When Okay, you saw it go up and go back down? That's everything you saw it do? Come out above the trees and go back? That's basically it, yeah. So what was your inclination then? You returned back to the school and said, yep, it's out there. Or <laughs> like, what happened next? I was in an excited state. Mm-hmm. However, this was at the end of the school day. And we had a, a regular school taxi that took about six of us children home. When I got home, my mother saw the excited state that I was in. And she asked me what was wrong. And I said, you're not, you're not going to believe this, but I've seen some sort of UFO. And my mother is the sort of person she could spot me lying a mile off. Sure. Uh, (laughs) She realized immediately that what I was saying was we had, in fact, seen something. Now, unbeknown to me, my mother at the time knew a gentleman by the name of Randall Jones Pugh, who was a local veterinary surgeon in the area. But the other thing that he did was he worked for an organization called Bufora, which is the British Unidentified Flying Object Research Association. They're pretty much defunct these days as a research organization, but at the time they were quite prolific. Um, So she gave him a phone call. He came down, spoke to me. Then together we went back down to the site where where I'd seen the object. Unfortunately, by that time, the weather had deteriorated even more. It had got dark. And because of the boggy surroundings of the field, we couldn't actually make it to the location. And from that, that is basically what kicked off the media circus that enveloped the site in. So what happened when you say the media circus? How long did that take to unfold and what exactly happened? Uh, The media circus started quite rapidly. Um, I mean, this was the actual incident happened on the Friday. So basically, we had the whole weekend. And by the Monday morning, we were already getting a few new contacts from reporters. By the end of the week, they had to take the phone off the hook at the school because we were getting reporters phoning up from all over the world, TV crews wanting to come down and do interviews. It went silly. It really did. <laughs> Let me ask you this then. Can you tell me a little bit about Headmaster Llewellyn and the drawings and how that all unfolded? That happened the same that afternoon? Were you part of that? or Because you had said you went home pretty close to after the sighting. How did that all play out with the drawings? That happened the following Monday morning. Okay. Like I said, we had the weekend, but you've got to appreciate that this was 1977 Pembrokeshire. We had a lousy weekend. It was terrible weather. You know, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have internet. We concocted a story between us sure. at all. You know, the only access to phones we had were the house phones, and these were in the days where if you use the house phone, your parents were going to be listening to every word you said. Right. So the Monday morning we went into school and Ralph Llewellyn had obviously been alerted to the situation of what had happened. And he basically split us all up and put us all in exam conditions uh, and asked us to write a small report of what happened accompanied by a picture. There was no collusion between the children and... <laughs> I mean, if you've seen the pictures, you will appreciate that we were all pretty much the same. Yeah. When you say he put you guys in exam conditions, what is that like? Is it a, Was it a strict regimen? That was basically splitting us up on separate tables within the classroom, 
so that we couldn't copy off each other. We were separated by about three or four feet, each of us, and it was done with him watching over us as we did it so that there was no collusion. Okay. Was he a strict headmaster? Strict but fair. He was a very old-fashioned headmaster, very down-to-earth, but I still look back on him with a lot of affection. Right. So he was good. He kept the oh, rules, but you enjoyed learning from him. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And UFOs were completely outside of his world as well. And I don't think he ever believed in UFOs as such after us. But what he actually believed was that we had seen something out of the ordinary that he couldn't possibly explain. And he supported us all the way. Fascinating. Yes, his reaction to the finished drawings and everything, you felt like that was one that convinced him that something had actually happened. Oh, yes, absolutely. He changed. He was trying to make a joke of it until he did that with us, and his demeanor changed completely. It was, it was no longer something to ridicule. What were the ages of all the students? Were you guys mixed ages? Uh, no, we were uh, between 10 and 11. Okay. So then, I guess, with the ensuing media circus, as you said... I mean, I know now the drawings are all over the internet. Everybody has, has seen them. Did they get into the media pretty much immediately? Is that something that happened down the road? Oh, yeah, pretty much so. I mean, the, um, the local newspaper featured, to obviously took some pictures of our illustrations and put them in the local paper. And from there on, it, it just went around the globe. Wow. Do you think that uh, Ralph Llewellyn became a believer after that? Or how do you think he reconciled it after you guys went through that experience? All I can ever say about Ralph Llewellyn is that he did appreciate that we did see something. However, I don't think he would have ever said he was a believer in UFOs, but he certainly did appreciate that we'd seen something. One thing I love about Blue Apron, aside from always changing up the tasty meals you get so I never get bored with anything, is that as a company, they're always trying new things and continuously improving their methods, so the service is always fresh, too. Oh, are you talking about my garlic waste problem? <laughs> Uh, not exactly. All right, you, you see, folks, Scott thought that by giving him a whole bulb of garlic, he wasn't using all of it in all the recipes, so he felt bad that some cloves were going to waste. Poor little cloves. I know, but, but now they even send you just the right amount of cloves to use, so even less waste. Although I was using the leftover cloves in my own recipes. No, what I was actually referring to was all the fun partnerships with Blue Apron. You mean like them pairing up with Chrissy Teigen and MasterChef over the summer? Yes, exactly. Well, and them partnering with the animated series Bob's Burgers, featuring some fun and toothsome burger recipes inspired by the show. Also, I thought it was clever that this whole summer, the recipe cards were showing you instructions not only for cooking on the stove or in the oven, but also if you wanted to grill some ingredients over a barbecue. I do love summer grilling with Blue Apron and not wasting garlic. <laughs> yes, we all know that now. <laughs> uh, look, cooking at home should be convenient, fun, affordable, and most of all, delicious. And that's what you get with Blue Apron every time, because you get to choose the meals you want and when you want them. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash astonishing. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This is Kat from Chicago, Illinois. And when I'm not out driving around with my husband trying to find Resurrection Mary, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. 
I want to move on to asking you a few other questions. I mean, do you are you familiar with the second sighting that supposedly happened over the next few months with Rosa Granville at the Haven Fort Hotel and then the Combs family? And then also, I, I believe there was another sighting at the school as well. Right. Girl sighting involved a teacher and I think two or three dinner ladies. I don't, I don't know whether you call them dinner ladies in the States. Basically, the women who prepare the school lunches. Oh, sure. That was possibly about three or four days later. But the staff members, I mean, they did go on record and say what they'd seen, but they, uh, it was never made public who they were. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So you were still there at that time. I mean, did you know who they were? I knew who uh, the teacher was. I don't actually know who the, which of the dinner ladies it was that saw the object, but I certainly know who the teacher was. And do you believe their account as well, or do you think they were just trying to get on the bandwagon somehow, if people were to say that, or do you think that they... Oh, no, saw... certainly not. These were very down-to-earth women. I mean, the, the teacher I was talking about was... I mean, she was so practical, it was unbelievable. Um, <laughs> there was nothing that they would ever done like that. Okay. They saw a being, right? Yeah. Do you remember the description of what they saw? I don't, actually. I, I know they, they saw the same craft. I've seen the descriptions of the craft, but I, I haven't actually seen the descriptions of a being that, uh, that they saw. Okay, okay. I read a, um, a BBC News article from February of last year, 2017, right. which, you know, it talks a little bit about how you were skeptical, and that was the whole reason that you had gone out there and everything. I guess the next thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, now that all these years have passed and uh, you've had to tell the story so many times and you've been influenced by other people's accounts maybe, how clear is the memory to you? Is it set in stone for you or is it a little vaguer now that it's been all these decades or how does it feel to you as an event? It's still clear as it was that day. You know, if you followed everything that I've said in the media over the years, I mean, the one thing that I've, I've always been is very clear. I've never elaborated on what I've seen. To me, it was so fascinating. There was nothing to elaborate on. I mean, you know, people have accused us of childish imagination or immature imagination or whatever. But I've always been absolutely clear that I've never said at all during my life that I saw a spaceship. <laughs> Even after 40 odd years now, I still don't know what I saw. I've never claimed to be the one who's seen an alien UFO. Yeah, to me, it could have a totally terrestrial explanation. And if somebody could actually show me some sort of documentation to say that what we saw was some sort of top secret aircraft, I would buy that, you know, but nothing's ever changed for me. Okay. With regard to that, do you think it could have been like a prototype Harrier jump jet or something like that that they were developing nearby? But, I mean, that's why I asked you about the sound. Those were incredibly loud. No, it was certainly nothing conventional. Yeah, I mean, our school had a, had a very good relationship with the local air base, Broadway. Uh-huh. We were familiar with everything that NATO were flying we were seeing jet fighters on a regular basis. You know, we, we knew everything that was officially in the air at that time. Uh, we could have recognized any normal sort of aircraft. One other thing that's been suggested is it was a piece of agricultural equipment. Yeah, some kind of mass sewage macerator or something? Yeah, well, I mean, my first reaction to that is, well, first of all, sewage tankers don't fly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but not only that, I mean, we had children there who were children of the air crew at RAF Broadway. They, 
you know, we knew all the planes in the air. And most of the children at the school came from agricultural backgrounds. We came from farming communities. So, you know, we knew every bit of agricultural equipment that was available as well. So there was no misidentification. What we saw was obviously something out of the ordinary that we couldn't just pin down. When you saw it rise up above the trees, I mean, this is kind of the magic trick question. Could you have passed a hoop around it? You could see that there was nothing between the bottom of it and the earth. Was it high enough for that? Right. There, um, there was a very, very small section of what well, I suppose I call the fuselage, which was obstructed by trees, but only a very small amount. Possibly about 85% of the vehicle was above the tree line. And would you describe it as circular in shape? No. I've, uh, right. I've always described it as a cigar-shaped object. Okay. Because that was the profile that I saw. I would be willing to possibly accept that I might have seen a round object in profile, but that's not something I can say with any certainty. I've seen the drawings, but for the sake of our listeners, would you describe it as having had windows or a cockpit or a a glass canopy, like a military aircraft or anything like that on it? There was a red light on top of it, I think? Yeah, right. I wouldn't have described uh, windows as such. There was nothing there that had any sort of translucency to it. The whole craft I saw was a silver pearlescent color, and the only thing that actually stood out was a pulsating red light on top. Did that strike you as a typical sort of aircraft light that you might see on on a normal aircraft or military craft? No, not at all. Okay. What was different about it, the red light? It wasn't a light as as such. It was more of a pulse rather than than a flashing navigation light. Okay. Maybe it had more of a... um like a slower nature as to how it would light up and like a glowing type situation. I mean, like I said, we used to see navigation lights and it certainly wasn't a navigation light. How was your experience different from what the other kids had seen that brought you to go out there and look? What had they seen that precipitated you going to check? It was just purely that they were thrown into a scene of flying saucer. I mean, that that immediately sparked my disbelief. I just thought it was ridiculous that this could be happening. That's all I can explain about how I felt at the time. But you never saw it, and they never saw, nobody saw it depart the area? No. When you guys went out there, you were not able to find evidence of its presence? Not that evening. We did go back the following day. We had a reporter from the uh, Western Telegraph with us at the time. And the ground was so boggy, there was no way that a conventional vehicle could have gotten to the area in which the UFO was sighted anyway. Sure. And even if something had tried, the tracks would have been clearly visible there the following morning. But there was only one indication that there could possibly have been something there, and that was there was a recently repaired telephone line pole. And it had been damaged. Something had obviously knocked one of the cross pieces on it. Oh, interesting. But we can't actually say that that was done by the UFO. However, it had been repaired only a matter of a week or so prior to that. How high off the ground was this uh, cross piece? Um, Looking at a telegraph pole outside my window, and I'd probably say about 30, 30 foot or so. So typical of a telegraph pole. It was up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. 
Are you in touch with, or have you been? Have you stayed in touch with, or you're out of touch with your fellow students from the school? And no, I'm I'm completely out of touch with all the children now. Um, I think I've got one uh, that I speak to occasionally on Facebook, and that's about it. And do you guys ever talk about the incident, or no? Um, I I think I'm the one who's left to talk about it most. Uh-huh. Um, most of the children that I was in school with have tended to drift into very sort of respectable, well-standing jobs where the matter of UFOs, that's not something they want coming up too much. So I think I'd probably be described as the mouthpiece for the school. <laughs> How do you feel about that role? Well, I've never worried about not being respectable, so... Um, <laughs> Um, it's something that, you know, that I've felt important to do over the years because, I mean, Broadhaven, it's a small village. It's part of Broadhaven's culture now. And the story actually appeared in a local book that was published called Pembrokeshire Folk Tales. I've never seen myself as being someone who's part of a folk tale, but there I was. So I, I think it is important to keep it going. Well, it is fascinating. It's the very kind of thing that we love to talk about on our show, and we're always thrilled when we can talk to an actual witness. And it's funny, I'd written out some questions for you, and I had forgotten that you were alone, because you had said before, you know, people had accused you of sort of childhood flights of fancy, because I was going to ask you about that, but um, you're not predisposed to any kind of mass hysteria necessarily, because you've gone out there by yourself. They're not all standing around you going, look, 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 and everyone's conjecturing. You're on your own witnessing this and then it's corroborating what they had already seen um so that's really fascinating to me well let me ask you this one thing that i read that i thought was very unfortunate was you had mentioned again in the bbc article that it led to you being physically attacked in secondary school like that you being this one of the witnesses to this oh yeah um i was the kid who'd seen the spaceship you know that was how people described me so um 1970s, 80s Pembrokeshire, it didn't take a lot to attract the attention of bullies. You know, it it didn't help that as far as I were concerned, I I was a bit of a a swat or the fact that I was overweight. You know, it was the UFO thing just added to it. And there were so many times where I was being beaten to a pulp and all I had to do was turn around and say that I had seen a UFO. You know, that was all they wanted me to do. But my principles were solid even at that age, and I couldn't actually bring myself to lie just in order to get the beatings to stop. That's admirable. So you refused to give in. Oh, yeah. I've got a DVD here of an appearance that I made in 1978 on a program called Magpie, which was a a children's magazine program on TV. And they were, because they'd just released Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or they were releasing it, they wanted somebody, UFO witnesses on the program to talk about it. And if you see me on that program, if you look very closely, you'll notice that I've got a black eye, and that was purely from a beating that I had the day before I had to go off and appear on this show. So the beatings were relentless for five or six years of secondary school. Oh, my God. Is that on uh, YouTube? Is that available online anywhere? I don't think it is. It took me a while to get a hold of a copy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was doing a documentary for another TV company, and they managed to, they said they found a copy, and they let me have a DVD of it. Oh, well, see, I'm going to see if our, we have some researchers. I want to see if they can find it. It's called Magpie? 
the program was called Magpie. Yeah, it was. Um, it would have been 1978 because it was around about the same time as Close Encounters of the Third Kind was being released. Okay, that was a local program. No, that was a national program. That was national, Britain. and that's BBC. Yeah. Okay. It was ITV. Oh, ITV. Okay, great. I think at the time it it was made by Thames Television. That's great. That's great. Um, being beat up for years and years is not great. So I don't know how you put up with that, but that's pretty amazing. And uh, you think they just were doing that because it was just another reason to pick on you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Uh, it became the predominant reason for picking on me. Right. You stayed with it and you stuck to your story. Yeah, absolutely. Which obviously you're still sticking to. So I'm curious how this experience might have affected your personal belief system. I don't know if you're religious or not, or how you feel about space travel and that sort of thing. Like, how how did it affect how you viewed the world the rest of your life? Uh, Probably my open-minded view of the universe. One thing that I, I never grew up with was any sort of prejudice based on race, religion, whatever. I've got no belief system myself. I don't do belief systems. In the sense, ufology has turned into a belief system for some, and that winds me up something terrible. I only deal in fact, but I do appreciate that there is an extraterrestrial hypothesis out there for UFOs. And if I accept that there are people from from other galaxies visiting, I can't possibly have any prejudice towards somebody just because they're black or just because they're gay, or just because they're Muslim, or whatever. So it's probably affected me that way, and it's made me completely devoid of intolerance. Oh, well, that's fascinating. That's an interesting answer. I don't think that's what I was expecting, but that's a really unique perspective, especially considering what it means. Because when you say, okay, well, this happened, I know this happened, I do, you know, and as you said, you haven't said that it was a flying saucer. You just said it was something that you can't explain. Absolutely. To me, UFO simply means unidentified flying object, and that's where it ends. I've done 40 years of research trying to look into these things and trying to find any snippets of information to find out where they're coming from. And, you know, it's worked to a certain degree because I I know that there are UFOs that have been spotted throughout the years that have later turned out to be things like the SR-71 Blackbird or the F-117 Nighthawk or something like that. Sure. And the people who saw these things being tested out of White Sands and out of Area 51 and other bases, they were reporting them, and they were being ridiculed as being lunatics because they were seeing UFOs. Because if you look at a Blackbird or you look at a Nighthawk, they're not conventional aircraft. Now, at the time, they were alien to the aircraft. Sorry, I use the word alien. But you know what I mean? Alien to their way of thinking. Yeah. And they were reporting these things, which, of course, didn't exist officially. So they've gone down on record as being loony UFO sighters when, in fact, they did see something. And to this day, I don't know whether I saw something terrestrial. I've looked at the interdimensional hypothesis. I've looked at future echoes, you know. Uh, I've probably been down so many rabbit holes with conspiracy theories that I am surprised that I'm still reasonably sane. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that brings me to my next question. I mean, with all those decades of research, is there anything that you felt like aligned with what you saw more than any other particular hypothesis? No, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, the only thing I can think of is I've spent thousands of pounds 
situation just to be as confused as I was that day in 1977. So uh, it got to be quite obsessive at one time, you know, looking into the subject. And like I said, you know, if you look into a subject, it drifts off in other directions and you get involved in conspiracy theories and you get involved in heaven knows what. And, and so these days, I think I've got the attitude where I don't look so much anymore. If something alerts itself to my attention, I might give it a, a few minutes. But the only way we're going to find out about these things is if, A, the governments finally admit that these things are ours, or if they come down and make themselves known to us. Otherwise, we're never going to find out. The secrecy levels that are involved with ufology are so ridiculous that they go above the Manhattan Project. And, I mean, we know how well that worked out. So, I don't know. Have you had any lasting sort of psychic type of effects from this encounter? Like any strange dreams or anything that you felt like might be some sort of communication or, you know, messages that came to you from outside of your own consciousness? Um, hard one to say this. The problem is I know so much about the subject and I've spent so much time pretty much obsessed with it from time to time that it's hardly surprising if anything makes its way into my subconscious. Oh, sure. So somebody suggested once that I should go and get hypnotic regression to look to see if there's any sort of abduction scenario going on. That would be so unreliable with me because I would know enough about the subject to give a perfectly plausible scenario and hypnosis. Right. So it's hard to tell. If you had a chance to go back to that day and see it again, would you want to do that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You look for things now? Have you seen anything else since then? I've always got my eyes in the sky. I've seen five or six times over the years. I've seen things which can't be readily explained. I mean, on one of those occurrences, I actually believe I saw a top-secret aircraft, but rather than any sort of otherworldly object. But yeah, I've seen a few things over the years that I can't explain. But that was probably not at such close quarters. Oh, no. Um, I've seen lights in the sky. I mean, the most recent was something which was particularly strange, I think, about two months or so ago, over the time where I'm living now. It's the second time I've seen it in this area, and it's basically a solid object, which I believe is triangular, with an orange glowing object in the middle of it. But I don't know, they, they just, I would never report it now, because I don't know if there is anyone these days, I think there's MUFON in the States, but I don't think there's anybody these days that is seriously collating and researching UFO information anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly not in the UK anyway. Not since before we're pretty much non-existent these days. Are you familiar with the idea of the Welsh Triangle or the David Triangle? The Welsh Triangle was how it was described. There's no actual triangle at work there. It's, it was just basically, there were a group of, a number of sightings that happened from about late 1976 to about 82, and that pretty much got defined as being the Welsh Triangle or the David Triangle. You didn't find necessarily any common ground, at least in the way that it played out with some of the other group sightings that happened in front of uh, a group of kids, like Westall or something like that? Um, there's certainly other group sightings that I've seen, especially involving children, which have a remarkable similarity. Um, I think there's one in Zimbabwe. Yes, particularly. 
I mean, I started reading that one day, and it took me about five minutes to realize, after reading and looking at the pictures, that I wasn't reading the Broadhaven case. It was, uh, the similarities are, are pretty amazing. Yeah. And did you finish reading about that case? I did, but it's not to mind at the moment. You know, there was a message about stewardship of the earth, and, you know, people are still apparently looking into this case and can't figure it out. So, uh, yeah. so it's pretty fascinating with regard to that. But there's no reported interaction between the students or even the teachers that saw something later, the teacher and the dinner ladies. There wasn't any communication. There was just observation, no. right? No, not at all. Forrest, have you seen the chatter going on in the Facebook group about ancient people's tech advancements? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I knew that was going to be a hot topic. But like with a lot of topics we cover, especially ones like Giants or Gobekli, we know that we're going to eventually come across it over at the Great Courses Plus. Because everything's connected. Well, at least history and archaeology seem to be. Well, why don't you tell us about some strange connections we learn from the course, Ancient Civilizations of North America, Clovis Man, America's First Culture. Okay, well, the Clovis culture is named that because way wait, wait, back... Wait, wait, hold on, hold on a second here. Before you launch into that about what Clovis culture is, I got to mention how we first learned about it at all. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> no, 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 hold on. It's just something that we've, of course, talked about before. You know, how the old guard academic authorities can dismiss and quash a new discovery. Because in 1908, in Folsom, New Mexico, a massive flood had damaged the ranch of a former African-American slave turned cowboy named George McJunkin. Now, McJunkin was a self-taught geologist and historian, as well as a former bison hunter. So when he found a massive bison antiqua skeleton in a gully with a stone point sticking in it, he knew it was significant. The bison antiquus went extinct about 10,000 years ago, and no one in archaeology believed him. Smithsonian archaeologist William Henry Holmes was the first to deny that humans had arrived in North America any earlier than 3,000 years ago. And it wasn't until McJunkin sent his samples to Denver's Natural History Museum, and they found proof that Holmes's theory was wrong, and there were Paleo-Indian peoples in North America at least as far back as 10,000 years ago. Thanks, that was great. Now we're out of time for me to talk about the Clovis culture. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, maybe next time. Or our audience can go and learn about them right now, because here's a special offer to go check out this or any other fascinating lecture over at The Great Courses Plus a free trial with unlimited access to enjoy their entire library just by signing up at our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. We know you're going to love this, and you can hear an A-list professor tell you about it instead of Forrest. So <laughs> sign up for your free trial now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, I'm Neo, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. What's your take on the other parts of that flap that took place in Wales, like Rosa's experiences at the Haven Fort Hotel, and then also the Coombs family in particular, which had all those crazy events happen at, at their farm, at Ripperston Farm? Do you think those events were related? Because they were pretty close in time. Um, I was actually in school with Kieran uh, Coombs. Oh, really? Um, he, yeah, he was, he was about the same age as me, but what the Coons family went through was amazing and so fascinating. I mean, there were elements of it which almost clashed with poltergeist activity that was going on. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I find amazing now is there was a lot centered around the cattle removing, and despite the fact that there were no mutilations or anything, there was certainly something ominous going on with the cattle which could have 
you know, some connections to the, the mutilations that you had in the Midwest over in the States. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, of course, I have to ask you about Skinwalker Ranch, if you're familiar with the things that have gone on there. I've become familiar with Skinwalker um, about two years ago now. And it wasn't until then that I realized that Skinwalker seems to share a lot with what was going on at uh, Ripperston Farm. That's what I thought. Now, are, do they ever do interviews? Do they talk about that? Any any of them? Have you heard? Uh, very rarely. They were ridiculed quite a bit by some reporters, and they became very reclusive as far as their experiences were concerned. Uh-huh. I mean, a friend of mine, he spoke to them a couple of weeks ago, but they still won't go onto record and, and actually say anything these days. Okay. Did you ever read The Uninvited by Clive Harold? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's one of the ones that sits proudly on, on my bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. I am uh, I actually have a copy of it. It was just recently given to me by a friend of the show. I, I love the subline, uh, this story's true, but you'll wish it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. I think they tried to dress it up as a local sort of amateur horror for the book. It is a strange story when, it, when you read it, but again, knowing the family like I do, I have no doubt that what they were saying was true. I mean, in that sort of time in Pembrokeshire, we weren't the sort to go making up fanciful stories because it was just too much like hard work. I mean, we weren't the sort of people who attracted attention to us if, you know, we'd rather shun it completely. It seemed like the more research that we did, there were a fair amount of journalists who came around to the idea that there were pranksters involved in suing sightings at the very least. What do you say to people that would suggest that you guys were the victim of a prank or that pranks were mixed up in reality with regard to the all the sightings that took place in the late 70s and early 80s? I know there were a couple of pranks. However, the pranks came after the sightings. They were done as a response. It was basically to poke fun at the people who had sighted UFOs in the area. However, for some reason, it seems to have got twisted up that the pranks came first and what people were actually seeing were the pranksters. But but no, it was vice versa. With regard to the pranks that definitely happened, that it sounds to me, you know, I'm looking at it from across the pond, but it seems like everybody knows that specific cases were pranks as opposed to other cases. Are there specific ones that you can point to that you can say, well, no, we know for a fact this particular sighting or event was a prank? Uh, none that I know of, not in the Pembrokeshire area. I mean, I know there were pranks, but the pranks were known about. We know that they were pranks. Right. We knew who committed the pranks. One prank in particular, which the kids loved at the Broadhaven School, was about a week or so after we'd seen the UFO and it had made the papers and it had made the television. We all came into school one morning to find what looked like a huge red rocket lying on the on the school playing field. (laughs) There was a little bit of consternation because it looked like a bomb. Right. However, at the moment that us, the children turned up, I mean, this will also tell you how, how well we could identify aircraft. As soon as we got into school, we identified it as being a long range fuel tank off a bomber. Right. You guys knew. Yeah, we knew exactly what it was. What had happened was a local military surplus sales company had decided to have a joke, and they brought this thing that looked like a UFO and dumped it onto the school playing field just for a giggle. However, it backfired on them because they never intended on leaving it there. All they intended on doing was putting it on the school playing field for a joke and then coming back and taking it after. 
However, in the meantime, our headmaster had contacted the local newspaper to say what had happened and made a statement about how the kids loved having this new item of playground equipment <laughs> at the school. <laughs> continue to look for answers for this or, or have you moved on from it and how are you feeling about it going forward in your oh, life? I'm, I'm always looking for answers. If I could get an answer tomorrow that categorically proved to me what I'd seen, I would be so happy just to have that peace of mind. But I'm not actively looking like I used to now. I mean, I say that. I mean, I've still got hundreds of books on the subject and, I mean, if you look at my electronic library, I've got thousands of books on the subject. But I'm, I'm not as concerned these days about it. If, it. if I find out, I find out. If I don't, I don't. Yeah. In the course of your research, this is a question I personally wanted to ask, but, and, and I'm not sure I'm saying this right. And it would have been decades earlier, but did you, have you ever read anything about the, the secret Nazi saucer, the Hanabu? Yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff regarding the Nazi saucer design. I mean, a, a lot of the stuff I've seen has been nonsense. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've followed it quite a bit. And also the, the design for the Glock and did you feel like they were there was any similarities there between that and what you saw? If you look at any saucer-shaped craft, you're going to get a cigar-shaped craft in profile. But there were certain similarities. I mean, they were definitely along the same lines. Right. It's interesting. But again, this thing, it was 250, 300 feet away. You did not hear it making any noise of any kind. Absolutely none at all. And you said the weather was poor. Was it raining or cloudy or just cold? Or what, what was it like that day? It was drizzling. It was cold. Visibility wasn't great, but it was certainly good enough to see the object in front of me. Sure. Well, Dave, I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Um, I really, really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, Welcome, thanks for letting us give you a call. I hope to talk to you again soon sometime. It's been great, and it's been lovely chatting. Goodbye to everyone. Wow. Well, rarely do we get to talk with an eyewitness that, although young at the time, remembers it so clearly and in such detail and so vividly. I really enjoyed talking to him. And the other thing, and by the way, Dave, whenever you listen to this, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Because really, we don't meet many people that actually also want to talk about it, yeah. that are that willing and good at it. Yeah, and the other thing is you're still a young guy, and I'd like to say that because I think we're pretty close in age. <laughs> right. But, you know, you're a relatively young guy. A lot of times we cover these stories, and whoever was there is getting up there and yeah. uh, doesn't want to talk anymore. Not naming any names, but uh, <laughs> the Delphus Ring. Oh, so dear. anyway, it, it was great having you on. And I want to talk a little bit about his credibility. Mm -hmm. This is where I'm really going to pick it apart and destroy him. No, I'm kidding. We don't <laughs> do that kind of show. This event, it's affected him clearly his whole life, yeah. which proves to me initially he's not part of any kind of hoax. Because if it was some kind of hoax, he would have long forgotten or lost passion for it. Well, you know? I think he would have stopped, especially because, you know, you get ridicule unless you've got a screw loose and you love that kind of thing. If this was a joke that's just gone awry, at some point you'd want to give up on it. And that has happened with people coming out later 
after years and saying like jokes on you and then you're not believed ironically enough right and that's the thing i mean i believe that he absolutely saw something that he still can't explain and it bothers him yeah and when you look at the beatings you know getting beat up all the time yeah. it's just horrible and i you know yeah. There's a picture of him in one of these BBC articles where you see him at that age, and it's a little bit the awkward age. It's not a fun age to be anyway, mm-hmm. and now he's getting picked on. And it's funny, you know, he referred to himself as a SWAT, yeah. which we had to look up. I didn't know what that was. And <laughs> I'd heard it, but I wanted you really, to make... You'd heard it before? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I'd heard the term, but I was not... I had to look it up, too. I just want to make sure it was right. <laughs> Our <laughs> understanding was, yeah. is essentially it's kind of like a teacher's pet. You yeah, know, well, I mean, he's, kinda, he's basically describing himself as a nerd. He liked school and learning and, and you know, that sort of thing. Exactly. And so Somebody he already who, had that going against him before he was like, and I saw a UFO, you know, so. Exactly. So maybe more so than a teacher's pet. It's just somebody who does really well in school that the uh, other kids despise you for. Yeah. Because they're not doing so well. Right. And this is all before nerds ran the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, it was really hard hearing about what he went through in the course of his life as he stuck to his guns on this story. And I think the other thing that makes him seem so genuine is that when he's telling the story, like he told it to us, and I've heard him tell it in other places too, there are numerous opportunities for him to embellish it or to exaggerate, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't, even after 40 plus years. Like, for example, when I asked him if he ever saw the craft fully in the air, that's a perfect opportunity for him to be like, yeah, it was way up in the air. But instead he was like, well, no, there was a small part of it that was still concealed by the trees. That tells me that he's being truthful. And it also says that this encounter is really seared into his memory. The fact that he remembers that little detail, that it wasn't all the way up in the air, there was a small part of it. He must Mm -hmm. be able to see it in his mind's eye pretty clearly. You can either look at it two ways, or I generally hear it from people two different ways. Either it's burned in your memory, you won't forget any detail about it. It's like a movie that you can replay any time. Or it was significant, but your brain has or is preventing you from seeing it, recalling it correctly. You know, that might speak to, as we talked to Rich Hannon before, like, is that some kind of mechanism about this abduction thing? And and Rob will tell you too, is that, are these memories implants to try and confuse you about the situation? Yeah. Uh, Because I have a close, another friend who's, that happened to, and they were traveling with another friend and they remember it differently. They remember seeing very weird, significant things by the side of the road, but different things than each other that you would think that they would both remember the same. So that brings up a lot of questions, but yeah. Well, it brings up questions about perception of reality and if your mind and your senses are being manipulated in these situations. Exactly. So I think that that often is the case. We're not sure what we're looking at when something like this happens because it's blown our tops. We don't know how to process that. But I think this is, it was weird, but discernible to Dave. It was... It was something he could process and look at. It was just a strange, silvery, pearlescent, big craft. Well, that's the thing. I mean, 45 feet, that's big. I always think about that because that's, you know, I'm a car guy. I'm also into RVs (laughs) and buses. Yeah, Yeah, sure. And the 45 foot in the U.S. is the legal length limit for a bus. So when you see those big coaches like the Prevo, the Diesel twin pushers. Yeah, that's a 45 foot coach. Right. Like what uh, bands have or if if people that are wealthy have these really fancy RVs with all the slide outs, that's as long as you can go is right. 45 feet. But shaped and kind of looking like, in, at least in tone and color, like a large Airstream. Yeah, yeah. Big, yeah. B- big aluminum thing. But pearlescent, which I thought was a nice detail in that because it's not shiny, polished uh, metal. If you can imagine, it's got kind of a, a glow to it, kind of a sheen. Well, and yeah, imagine something that big floating in the air yeah. and not making any noise. Yeah. It's just... Yeah crazy. And to the point of like, well, when he said there was a part of it that was still concealed by the trees, 
if it was that big and had that much mass, even if this was some kind of hoax, what kind of equipment would have to be on the ground to foist something up that well, high? Well, that's my point that he uh, also made, which I loved, is that I said this before, I think with Rob, uh, we were talking with him in episode 114, was that if this is a hoax, it's a pretty elaborate one with a lot of gear. Yeah. It's like you would take a team of people to do this and uh, for what reason? You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, if a movie crew could hoax anything, get it on film, and you'll believe it. Obviously, look at any sci-fi movie today. And we're getting there where it's very close. I would say in the 80s, you can still see that uh, rotoscoping uh, blue outline on things and traveling mat. Oh, yeah. On the, well, in the Star Wars movies, when they were first remastered. Yeah. And the mats were bad, like on the TIE Fighters and stuff, you could see like a faded... You could see a little blue yeah, outline. Yeah, Same well. thing with the early Star Trek movies, which were very good back then. Yeah. We all enjoyed them, but you can still see that. It's getting better. You can still kind of discern what's uh, real. It's not 100% there, but it's 99%. It's getting pretty close. Yeah. But the difference is here is that if it's a mechanical hoax, like it's a lot of stuff to put together that's technical. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me, especially earlier we talked about weird creatures coming out of multicolored flames. Yes, a Hollywood movie production could do that, but that's tens of thousands of dollars. And the other thing is, we know that Harriers were developed around there. And for those of you right. that don't know, a Harrier is a jump jet. That is a VTOL aircraft, vertical takeoff and landing. Right. It's a plane that can fly straight up off the ground and then convert to uh, horizontal flight. Yeah, it directs the jet blast downward and uh, can then propel you forward. If you uh, want a visual reference, think of Arnold Schwarzenegger piloting one in True Lies. In the True Lies movie, yeah. exactly. And so it's designed to be able to land and take off with no runway, essentially like a helicopter. But here's the thing about those. They're loud. They're real loud. Oh, and and the prototypes is, yeah, had really to be loud. 10 times louder than the final aircraft was. So right. this thing was only 250, 300 feet away. There was no noise. They yeah. said it was dead silent. Because here's my other thing is that, okay, then logically you would say like, okay, it's a dirigible yes. uh, of some kind. It's an inflatable airship. But then where did it go? Because you can't really deflate those, pack that up into a, a bag, a kite sailing bag and take off with it. It's not that easy. So... Either you had to disappear it somehow, or it's got a cloaking device or something kind of crazy. So again, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that it was some kind of airship. Well, yeah, and I'm sure that's occurred to him. I'm sure they looked into that. Yes. You know, and aside from it being an airship, it also would have had to been an airship constructed in the shape of UFO and deployed. <laughs> right. You know, in this classic shape. And there were a lot of sightings of this shape at that time, and it's interesting. Here's the other thing I love, and it's kind of a buzzword in the mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. right now. He kept saying there was no collusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And I'm not going to make any political references there. But uh, on the part of the kids, that's a super important fact. They were unable to collude together to come up with the story. They all drew the same stuff. When they went home, they went to their respective homes, and this is a rural area. I'm thinking yeah. everything's kind of spread out. And he was making the point that, like, you couldn't talk on the phone in your house without everybody in the house knowing. Yeah, it's like a party line. You remember that's, like, farms would have that a lot because oh, any right. rural area. And actually your neighbors, because I remember, you know, back in the day in the farm country, you picked up the phone, 
you could hear your neighbors because it's just one line going out. So yeah. you had to wait till no one was talking. Then you called the operator and said, could you put me through to this number? Right. And they would do that. You know, yeah. But yeah, that's a party line. But pre-cell phone, pre-internet. Yeah. And the idea that these 14 kids were all like, okay, we're going to draw a picture X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Let's all talk about it. That sort of... Because the drawings came the next day, the following day. So... They would have had to all go home and collude about it. And he and on top of that, the drawings were done in, as he described, exam-like conditions. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's pretty fascinating. We've talked before about how so many of our friends and listeners, and listeners who have become friends, have all got some side projects going on. Yeah, we're really impressed by how creative and productive our listeners are. Everyone's got some project going on, like art, music, photography, writers, gamers, bloggers, crafters, craft brewers, (laughs) and of course, now their own podcasts. And one thing we've mentioned before, but maybe didn't stress enough, is that whatever you're doing, even if it's not creative or it's just business or a developing idea, you still need a website presence. It's so much easier for people to find you and whatever it is you're doing if you have an easy-to-find website that's just all about you. And that's where Squarespace comes in. As Will Rogers said, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And that's so true in today's digital infinite void. There are literally a billion or more choices for everything, so you must stand out from the rest. Squarespace has built-in SEO, or search engine optimization, which means it helps people pick your website out from the crowd. For example, if someone does a web search for your project, you want to pop up near the top of page one of the results, because think about it, when's the last time you ever went past page two of search results? And then there's the name of your website itself. Squarespace helps with that too, because they offer a new way to buy domains, and you can choose from over 200 extensions. So you don't have to go with the plain old .com or .net anymore. You can have something fun, like .art, .band, .shop, .restaurant. You get the idea. Then, once your site is up and running, you need to see how it's performing, and Squarespace has great, easy-to-understand analytics too. And let's face it, if your site looks like crap on a cracker, that's all anyone's going to remember. So it needs to look good too. Like you know what you're doing. Squarespace has Lots of beautiful, sleek, and elegant templates to choose from, created by world-class designers. Now's the time. Don't wait. Head on over to squarespace.com legends for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. One more time, go to squarespace.com legends for your free trial. Then use the offer code legends to save 10% when you're ready to launch. You can make it yourself. You can make it stand out because you can make it with Squarespace. So how was New Orleans? <laughs> it was fun. It was interesting. And it was like 95 degrees with 90% humidity with lots of walking. So it was like getting out of a hot shower, then going for a jog and a steam bath. Oh man, sweaty and uncomfortable? <laughs> Indeed I was, more so than usual. And for a variety of reasons. But I had one good thing going for me. Oh yeah, what's that? My trusty Mack Walden undergarments. Ah, right. They do have several lines of underwear that specifically address your problems. <laughs> What do you mean, my problems? Everyone gets that way in hot weather. But you're right. Mack Weldon is all about smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience. Buying Mack Weldon off their site is as easy as wearing them. So what pairs did you travel with, Forrest? Well, I think my new favorite fabric, aside from their line of shirts and underwear that have Silver XT2, which has antimicrobial and anti-odor properties, keeping you cool and fresh. Odor? Stop, stop, stop. (laughs) 
<laughs> Again, it's not just me, okay? This stuff works. What I was trying to say is that my new favorite is their AirKnit X line, which is made with a super light and airy microfiber blend that stretches four ways, so it moves with you while keeping you comfy and dry, because there's also a three-and-a-half-hour plane ride to get to New Orleans. Well, from Los Angeles. That's true. Not only are all their products made with space-age fabrics, like their underwear, socks, shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, and now swimwear, but the cut and construction is so well done, they'll be the most comfortable and well-fitting clothes you can wear. And if you don't think so, and you don't like your first pair, you can keep them, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. My point to this story... Oh, there's a point this time? Yes, and that point is, if Mack Weldon is so comfortable in extreme travel conditions, imagine how cool and breathable they are with just everyday wear. Okay, that is a good point. And with this special offer, you don't have to spend another minute being uncomfortable. Because if you go right now to MacWeldon.com and enter promo code LEGENDS at checkout, you can get 20% off your first order. That's right. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code LEGENDS at checkout. It's going to be better than whatever you're wearing right now. Hi, I'm Lily Bow, and when I'm not working in a museum with artifacts, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so Forrest, now we can reveal some of those specific questions that you had that uh, that you asked me to ask him. Oh, I don't remember what those were. Well, there was the one that you bumped on and thought was pretty interesting in, in Me Too was that when he described that urge to run away and mm-hmm. whether that was a suggestion, because I got to specifically ask him if it was fight or flight, and he said it wasn't. It wasn't that. It was different. Yeah, he said quote, it was an urge that wasn't really mine. Yeah, so what does that tell you? What do you think that's about? Oh, no, that's a, when you talk about fight or flight instinct, that was fight or flight triggered by something external. Yeah. Is how I interpret that feeling, is that, like he said, he wasn't really scared. He was just really intrigued, of course. It's something he's never seen before. I would be the same way. I don't, we never know until we're in that situation. And I'll be very honest and tell you exactly how I feel when I come across a 45-foot silvery pearlescent cigar. Just behind a copse of trees. <laughs> behind, rising over a copse of trees with lights of all multicolored sort coming out of the dome at the top. I don't know. I would be. I just can tell you I'd be very intrigued. As a kid, I always was. I never, uh, I was always looking for something. I never really hoped for it because, again, I still need to get to sleep. I yeah. don't need to be wondering what's going to abduct me in the middle of the night because when I was a kid, that was very big back then. This is my question, this yeah. feeling of fear, which was also described in the Mothman stories yeah. out by the uh, TNT plant. Yeah, actually, John Keel went back. That was Keel. Uh, it was Keel yeah. was talking he, about the area when he was there. And my question is, with regard to this UFO, if you believe any of this at all in this mm. whole story... What is that? Is that like as they're descending and they see people, do they they have a button on the it's like make people want to leave? <laughs> well, make did. people and here's the other yeah. thing, why appear at all, especially by a school? Right. If you're just gonna try to get everyone to go away. I you know what is I it think... organic? Is it mechanical? Is it like or is it some creature in there who's like staring at them? All good questions. I don't think it's anything that uh, we may not be able to understand. Again, going back to Rich's Mothman prophecies. As uh, Alexander Leake says, it's we're not supposed to know. It's one of those things where their reasons are their own. I keep mentioning that again. It's this phrase that he said struck me the same way. 
you can ask the question, but you will not understand the answer. Yeah. As smart as you think you are with your big human ego, you're not going to get it. You're going to be that one and a half year old that gets uh, fairness explained to them. And it's like, no, everything's mine. It's like, no, you're not getting this. Well, yeah. You will when you grow up. The other thing that's interesting too is that he had that urge, but he didn't go. Until he got done looking at it. No, that's what I'm saying. I think the fear was not there, but I get the feeling, though, again, that feeling was imparted to him by whatever mechanism, and that was, this. you should just go. Yeah. You know, like, just, you should run away. Again, not to scare him, because if you can impart that idea, you can also impart a tremendous amount of fear, which would do the same thing. It was more of a friendlier, gentler, like, time to get moving, kid. Yeah. Nothing to see here. We got some stuff to do. You best run along. So that's, again, a really interesting way of phrasing it. I love, that's maybe one of my favorite quotes of his. It was an urge that wasn't mine. Yeah. And so, yeah, again, he, he's captivated. He's, I'm sure he's on edge. Hairs are standing up. He's ready to run, but it's not out of fear. It's like a suggestion. A that, manipulation. Uh, yeah, of sorts. So, I mean, to answer your, your previous question there, if you're going to go along that line of logic and reasoning, then I think it is something that is um, maybe not a beacon. Maybe it's, a like I said, who knows? It could be a crowd dispersal kind of beacon, but it wasn't universally effective like, uh, you know, a microwave beam would be as we have nowadays. We can aim that at people yes, and get them to disperse in a crowd. Now, I haven't really, I don't know if it's been deployed yet, but what it's been described, who people who have experienced it, it's like a tremendous beam of heat that you want to get out of the way of. Yeah. And, and they have sonic to, weapons, too, which they use to yeah. repel pirates in the Malacca Straits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but they I, have all kinds of stuff. So you're not seeing that. Sometimes you, you hear of stories where there are really annoying and grating sounds, and you certainly hear, is with these stories, there are some unpleasant physical side effects. That's a very common one, too, is that it seems unintentional, but these are machines. Yeah. That's why you don't stare at somebody welding. Yeah. <laughs> there are effects to that. Which uh, if I you don't always take... look right at it, by the yeah, way. Yeah, do you? Right. I know from driving right. a car, there's a guy welding on a building on the side of the road. I always look right at the light. Yeah, but not for too long, I hope. No, no, yeah, no. Because you will, but that's the thing. You should... That happened during the eclipse where people, well, I know uh, one woman stared at it without any eye protection, burned a hole in her retina. Yeah. But there's other cases where people, uh, where is this? I think it was upstate New York, perhaps, where a guy walked up to it, famous case, and he he got burned by the exhaust. Yeah. Now, there wasn't a warning light going off, like, please do not approach, exhaust happening, or yeah. you know, like a like a jet will tell you, like, no step. You'll yeah. see that on jet aircraft. So there's no warning that goes out. This was very subtle and not something you often hear about because you do, as as Rob says, do not look the UFO. Yeah. Do not approach. It's probably dangerous. There's machinery go uh, and and you side effects the going space on. Space pancakes either. I don't know about that. The space uh, waffles. Hey, they're offered to you. See, that's a different thing. They're offered to you. A Trojan feast. Uh, food and drink offerings by aliens and otherworldly beings. Yeah. Like book. Uh, Joshua Cutchins. Cutchins, yeah. So uh that's a different thing, but here. It's a very subtle telepathy. And again, I found it very interesting because it was gentle. They, look, they could have shrieked at Dave, gave him a bad sunburn, all those stereotypical things, but it was just kind of a thought. Well, this is the other thing about this, and one of the weirdest things about this case for me. No one saw it leave. No one saw this thing leave. No yeah, one describes okay. it flying up into the sky. How does that happen? And that makes me wonder, like, how are you just going to be like, well, look at that weird thing over there. Okay, I'm going home. That's a little bit of a hole for me with regard to the end of the story. But then the other thing it makes me wonder is, what did they really experience? 
Right. Maybe they did see it leave, but they don't remember because it doesn't want them to. Uh, that's a very good point. It's also tied in with me because, again, I'm hearing this a lot, and all I do is try and draw parallels and patterns and, and see notice patterns is that, again, it goes back to Rob saying that, you know, he and his buddy were out on a break at work and they saw this egg-shaped craft, you know, floating in the sky. They both were just talking about UFOs. Mm -hmm. He's much more knowledgeable now, I'm sure, because of just the amount of books he's read and the materials. But then he was knowledgeable. And they both look up and it's like, look at that. Yeah. Now there's a, there's more flying about in an egg-shaped craft. Okay, let's go back about our day. Yeah. There's something there that's, uh, it is kind of a move on. You got a good eyeful. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Yeah, take a picture, buddy. It'll last longer. Yeah. Actually, take a picture. It doesn't matter. But they it's forget to blurry. take I think in Rob's case, he had a camera, but he forgot or something. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying yeah. is that this thing happens and you don't, there's some kind of mechanism. And I, it's not totally external. I don't think it's aliens beaming a uh, do not photograph, please beam at you, but... It could be partly internally subconscious where it's like, don't even get into this. Just keep walking. Like yeah. you saw something weird. We have to finish out the rest of the day and then clock out. You need to keep living a normal life. And it's kind of an internal process that says, uh, okay, make a note, but don't start letting this you know, rule your life. In Dave's case, it has fascinated him since that time. Yeah. And he's studied up on it over 20 years now, of course. But in a healthy way, I think. Yeah. Just not obsessed with it, just really interested, as I think I would be too. I would want to know, what can I learn about this? What patterns can I make? And, and that's all he's done here in a very diligent and intelligent way, I think. Going back to that phenomenon, I do think that there's something, maybe a combination of things. It, it could be, we don't want to be seen leaving or whatever that mechanism is. So you kind of blank out on that point. Or it could just be internal like your self-preservation kind of thing, mentally, subconsciously, or a combination of both, or something affecting that internally with us, because of course we're cattle to them and they can manipulate us, you know, like as we do zoo animals. But for, you know, we're trying to help them. You know? Right. They seem to be largely indifferent to us, or if they have a message, it's awkwardly transmitted. Yeah. I, I'm really curious about why nobody saw it leave. Because yeah, in uh, yeah. Granville at the hotel, she saw things coming and going. And other yeah. people did see things coming and going. But the particular event at the school seems like it was just out there a couple hundred feet away. Yeah. And there it was, and we all went home. So, I guess, you know, it just made me think, too. It's like, in a, in a different sense, and I guess it's all with the paranormal, it's like the small number, the few ghost hunt, walk kind of things that we've been on now it's i'm carrying a camera and a digital recorder like we, uh, we talked about at kent and sometimes it didn't occur to me to turn it on yeah <laughs> or take that's a, a good point i didn't take any cell phone photos with my iphone i had the recorder going i'm juggling that we've also had people tell us who are proficient in ghost hunting and, and paranormal hunts and investigations that you sometimes don't focus on the tech part of it don't worry about that. It's not going to solve the answers for the world. <laughs> You're going to get that one shot. There it is. I've got the definitive ghost or UFO or Bigfoot shot. Still hasn't happened. May never happen. What you should focus on is the personal experience, which does not require gear. And yeah, so we're that's talking about that in October. Yeah, but that's when it comes back to. It's like I'm having a great time. I'm wandering around. I'm open to anything. I didn't really experience anything physical. You did uh, at Kent kind of a heavy oppressive feeling i was just being trying to be very neutral and open and uh i'm tingling with excitement but not really receiving that uh fight or flight sense and not really thinking to take pictures i'm just kind of taking it in take some training to get to a point where you're 
prepared to record something and experience well, it. Well, I have been thinking about that. It's yeah. funny you should mention that because I have been practicing with my phone how to hit the photo button really quick. And sometimes if it's 3.33 in the morning and uh, I go to open the door to get some fresh air in, I just happen to be awake or woke up, I will sometimes walk to the door with the phone because I'm expecting now something to be there. Yeah. Not afraid because the phone's a repellent because I'm just not destined to get that one great snapshot of whatever weird thing is out there. So I feel kind of, actually feel kind of safe. Right, <laughs> right. But but no, I have been thinking about that and practicing it. But at the same time, I guess what I was saying is that it's like what Dave Davis did is that you just, it's a very personal intake of something strange. And I'm not, we're not saying we know what it is. It's just something very out of the ordinary. And that's been burned into the negative of his brain bank. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. pretty, uh, you know, pretty vividly. The other thing, by the way, about this and about his story that's really gnawing at me is the whole Ripperstone farm. Yeah. Stuff, the Coombs family, which I don't know why I was surprised that he knew mm-hmm. them. This is a small rural area. Yeah, yeah. But man, I would love to have them on the show, but I get the feeling that that's going to, no, not going to hold my breath on uh, that. No, no, they, they've taken the opposite tack as uh, Dave has, which is not to, it, it's brought a lot of pain and uh, misery and discomfort to their family. And it's like, they don't ever need to speak about it again because nothing good comes from these experiences. Well, and then there's that book by Clive Harold, which Rob mentioned, and yeah, that's also right. coincidentally, Rich Haddam just gave gave both you and me copies. He gave us these gift baskets yeah, a couple for, months ago. Yeah, no, no. He was a very um, lovely, delightful gift. There was a lot of fun stuff in it. but Lots but of booze and books. <laughs> booze and, and books. It was and, pretty awesome. And but, really delicious uh, candies and such. But, but that book, it's called The Uninvited. Yes. And it's about the Coombs story. And it has the best tagline I've ever seen. Book, movie, anywhere. <laughs> this story is true, but you'll wish it wasn't. Yeah. That is just, <laughs> right. no one will ever be able to top that. That's better than like just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. It's just, that's amazing. The idea though is that if you were this family, this is terrifying. This stuff is, you can't make sense of it. Look, if somebody breaks in and uh, robs your family, like that's terrifying, but you can understand it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you don't want it to happen to you, but those are humans. The stuff that happened to them is just as unsettling in a way that, You'll never get answers to, so who who knows, but it's still just as disturbing and lifelong. Again, I don't know if I would want to experience that myself, even as eager as I am to experience something uh, or open to the idea of anything kind of out of the ordinary happening at a safe distance Yeah, that I can forget about when I need to. Here's the other thing I want to talk about before we wrap up the show. Two things. One is the silver creatures, which he didn't see that, but the other kids saw some kind of silver creature. And I'm not even sure if it was humanoid or not. I feel like in the drawings, it looked humanoid, like it, it yeah. bipedal, yeah. Um, it, at least bipedal, two arms, two legs, yeah. whatever. I bi- bipedal, but sure. Bipedal. <laughs> it's uh, the same thing. It's fine. Anyway, he didn't see that, but the other kids did. And the silver look to that yeah. reminds me of the swimmers in Lake Baikal. Yeah. My favorite, the UFO disco wizard who was floating outside <laughs> right. the UFO in the Mothman series. And he had a long white beard, which is why I called him the disco wizard. Yeah, right. He had a right. silver suit or looked silver. There was that other story that you were talking about a few minutes ago yeah, off that's, the air. That's one of the more famous Grinning Man stories, I think collected by David Weatherly in some of his books, but these two kids, I think it was in New Jersey. And what was strange is that they were kind of playing on the safe side of a, like a cyclone fence On the other side was like a highway arterial and not real busy, but it was a weird place for this guy to be. Like it was industrial. He was on the industrial side. And these kids, you know, that's where they played. They wondered like, how did this guy get over there? Mm -hmm. This fence is really tall. Judging by that, this guy was also, I think, very tall, skinny, wearing weird clothes, some kind of, I can't remember exactly, but it was a lot of metallic 
fabrics of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this one had a, I think, a wide green belt, mm-hmm. or part of the suit was green. But I love that they love color. Yeah. <laughs> so, and also David Weatherly had a uh, an experience. I remember him recalling on uh, on one of Jim's shows, I'm Jim Harold, Jim Harold, the Paranormal uh, Podcast, where he has him on as a guest. He's talking about some of his books, and he's coming around to Ben. I think somewhere in North Carolina. Out, not real dense woods, but it's kind of woods, and there's a you know tall grass. And they come around a bend, and there is a impossibly tall, grinning man with an impossibly wide smile, grin, just standing there, bolt upright, grimacing at them as they pull around. And his friend, who's driving, is is freaked out. He's not stopping, and David is also freaked out. But he's like, "We got to turn around. We got we got to know what that is." And they, I'm not stopping. So they finally find a a turnout, come back around. They could see where he was standing in the grass, but of course, no guy. No trail going off into any direction, just where he was standing. But again, weirdly not human, just trying to, again, I think of Mo Sislak from The Simpsons, <laughs> trying to smile, and he doesn't do it, so it's a grimace that's horrifying. It's that thing where, who knows what it's trying to do? Is it trying to appease, come off as friendly, or just, is it trying to freak people out? You don't know its motivations or what it's trying to accomplish, but... In any case, if you believe even a portion of these stories, it's a common motif, let's say, a light motif, the tall grinning man. And uh, it fits in with everything, and it's not just UFOs, but they are seen a lot around UFO activity. But they can be by themselves, out traipsing around. And one last thought about the color silver, of course. You, You can ask Gort from the day the Earth stood still, or anyone really. It's a prominent color in the color palette of extraterrestrials and the universe in general. Silver comes up a lot. And Rob probably tell you, I don't know, I'm sure there's um, UFOologists and researchers who have studied how often that color is described. Of course, it's not the only color, you know, solid black. You're being a car guy. Lexus has a pearlescent white. Mm -hmm. And think of that in a silver where it's kind of a, a glowy haze, very alluring, kind of a silver... Well, it's a, almost like yeah. an abalone type thing. Right. There's a sheen to it, and uh, you can afford a spacecraft to make it look good. Yeah. Pay for the extra detailing. Pay for the lava <laughs> wax, the hot spray wax, the wash there. Again, I love the way that it was described. I, I didn't mean earlier that it was a nice detail like it had been made up. I just like the fact that that's what it looked like. Yeah. Pearlescent. That really kind of sinks that into me, visually anyway. But yes, there's something about silver. So comes up a lot. Yes, it does. All right, well, I want to wrap this out. I think the last thing I want to talk about is the idea of hoaxes being intertwined with yes, this. Yes, we should. And, you know, I want to reiterate something that Dave said tonight, and that's that there were pranks, there were known pranks, and the prankster was known too, but Dave made it clear that the pranks happened after the initial strange events, and it's a bit of revisionist history to suggest that it occurred the other way around. As Dave right, said, right. it got mixed up. He says everyone seemed to think the pranks came first, but it was actually vice versa. Well, I actually got in touch with Reese, who was the guy that turned us on to this entire, you know, Welsh flap and everything, because he is Welsh himself, and mm-hmm. he was a freelance producer working with the Unexplainers on their podcast and their BBC Wales TV show, and he's the one that put us in touch with Dave, and I wanted to ask him about these pranks and the hoaxes, and so I was chatting with him on text, and he had some great info on it. He told me that in 1996, the Western Mail carried a report in which a 44-year-old businessman named Glenn Edwards admitted he had wandered around the area in a silver suit in 1977 as a prank. There's a quote, though. Alien sightings were all the rage, so I took a stroll around for a bit of fun, end quote. But that right there, that proves that the sightings were already happening. Right. 
he was ancillary to that. And Reese, for the Unexplainers, actually managed to track this guy down. He wanted to interview him. And he said not only was he super hard to find, but he didn't want to go on the record. He didn't want to talk (laughs) about it anymore, even though he's been quoted in the past. He refused to talk. Reese said he was avoiding any further publicity. Yeah. So I guess there's an implication that that guy wound up feeling kind of bad about it in the long run. Yeah. You know, but I, yeah, I, and I think it's either this guy or somebody else. I think he borrowed the suit, which was a fire suit. Right. From the Pembroke Refinery, which is in the area where he worked. But again, I want to reiterate that known hoax, which was the one I was wondering about when everyone was hinting about the known hoax when we were doing the research, that was definitely after the sightings had started occurring. So I want that to be clear. Um, No, you know what it is? It's, uh, it reminds me of when people say, of course, this is like with the black eyed kids. It's like, well, that story only came out after it appeared, uh, you know, in creepypasta after the internet. It's like, no, no, this is pre-internet, the reports. Yeah. And much further. And if you go back in history, you have similar things. They weren't called the same things. We, we talk about this in Black Eyed Kids. It's like you, you had different names for these creatures and phenomena. Well, and we also have to remind everyone that there's a lot of common ground between what was happening in Wales yeah. and ancient stories of fairies in the area. That's true. And yes. how they interact with people, which right. is, you know, people. a lot of people have asked us to do a show on fairies, which I imagine we will eventually. But there's something here yeah. that's very similar because what you have to think about is the toolkit that a person who experiences something like this has to explain it given the time period that they're in. In antiquity, yes. Yeah, and if yeah. it predates uh, mechanisms and machines and the Industrial right. Revolution, how do you describe it? Well, you're talking about fairies yeah. and how they enter and, and they floated up. I was about to know. say that, the floating, yes. the gliding over, which sometimes, again, with Mothman, they have wings, but they don't seem to be necessary, maybe like a fairy. Yeah. It's like, I don't really expect them to use the principles of lift. It's a magical creature to a degree. Like the first sighting about the Mothman, that brown creature sighted by the roadworking crew one or two days before the official, uh, you know, them being chased at the uh, dynamite plant there. I think they were in a cemetery, actually. It was a cemetery? Yeah, yeah. yeah some, could, could be, yeah, they're just workers, I know. Yeah, workers. Yeah, yeah groundskeepers or something. Ground yeah. workers, and uh, they see this thing, you know, with wings, dart up in the sky, but not flapping, really. Like yeah. Superman takes off. Yeah. So, you know, how would a person in, in antiquity describe that? It's magical. It's not like, well, there's a giant weird bird with hairy legs. You know, like, it's something else, and your vocabulary, visually, to describe that is very limited. So you transpose that, though, into contemporary modern-day times, and we have a better vocabulary, but it ends at a certain place. There are things that we cannot comprehend about it still, or technologies, but we do have a better grip on that. And so those are described differently. But if you talk about, like, what comes first, in this case, clearly the hoaxes chronologically are reported after the sightings, not the other way around. And as Dave says, and I think Reese says as well, it's like, it's a small town. We know everybody. Yeah. We know who did these things. Yeah. Not out-of-town hucksters. It's not the motel owner, the shady motel owner from Scooby-Doo trying to get the property cheap. Right. From out of town. These are things that are known to these people, and then they did it for a laugh. Like, people do these things. They have fun with it. Sometimes it backfires, like that big red rocket left by the military surplus store, which was unintentional. They were going to have a laugh, and then... uh, they end up losing it. So, you know, I mean, these are kind of the funny parts about it, but it happens after the initial facts, not sparking 
These aren't pranks that then spark a bunch of sightings. That's right. Hoaxing often follows a real event. And we've actually even talked about this in the case of the folks experiencing things. When the event is a once-in-a-lifetime experience and it's short on details or people start doubting it, it seems entirely plausible to me that original experiencers might embellish what happened to them in an effort to get others to validate the first experience, which was real. Yes. Now, like, I don't have proof of this, but I totally can see the human side of that. But the problem with that is when a subsequent event is shown to be a hoax, then the experiencer loses all their credibility and the original event falls into doubt. And so I think that happens sometimes. I saw this and then people aren't believing them or they don't have enough information. The event wasn't rich enough with details. So then they say, well, it happened again the other night too. See, it was true the first time. Or could it be something where a false memory is implanted. Yeah. Could it be a combination of all those things? I definitely believe, I'm, I'm not, we're not going to get into the details of documentaries we've seen, but I believe with some people that started off as very genuine and sincere may have added elements to embellish to get, because you're so desperate, you want people to believe your exactly. initial story, you put that in there. Or if it's a recurring invasion of your mind of sorts, are you then you now getting details that are clouding up the truth of it? Yeah. For whatever reason. Or it's a combination of all three of those things. And to be clear, there's there's no question people have made things up right from the get-go. Of course. And no Certainly. part of what they're saying is real. Right. But if you do the kind of stuff that we do, as long as we've been doing it the past few years, you start to get a feel for what's happening and what isn't. And yeah. I got to say, I believe Dave Davis saw something he can't explain that day in Broadhaven. <laughs> That's going to wrap up our three-episode story arc on the Welsh UFO flap of 1977. We'd like to thank our very special guest, eyewitness David Davis. We'd also like to thank, again, Reese Waters and the guys over at The Unexplainers. We'll be back next week with an interview with Small Town Monsters documentarian Seth Breedlove to talk about his catalog of movies and his brand new film, The Bray Road Beast. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Kat Meyer. Hi, I'm Neo. Hi, I'm Lily Bow. You spell my name A-L-I-E-N-S. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.